Let's ah. see. Hopefully I don't lose you again this time. Um, oh, well. <laughs> well, so the last, I don't remember cause I didn't do my due diligence and look back. So I don't really, re- I don't remember what part one was about. I just remember that part two begins where part one ends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so hopefully our listeners should go back and listen to part one, which I believe I talk about well, Romanovs, <laughs> old Russia, uh, yes. uh, and the 1905 revolution, the ver- which is very mm-hmm. bloody. So that was a good one. Yeah. Uh, and this one gets pretty bloody again. <laughs> All right. <laughs> one thing uh... that I've noticed about Russian history is that it's very bloody. <laughs> it's very bloody. <laughs> So that's why the yeah. communists chose the color red. Yeah, for sure. That might actually be true. I'm not sure. That might be true. Bullshito, we should look into that. Uh, <laughs> bonus episode. Why yeah, did bonus. Oh my God. It was red. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so, yes. where are we at? How are you, Bullshito? How's things? Are you back in action? I'm, um, I'm quite well. Uh, Good. We are recording this on the 29th. 9th of June. Beautiful. Yes. So in, summer day. Yes. In two days, uh, my climbing gym where I work will reopen again. Um, oh, good. Also in two days, uh, I will be uh, starting essentially, or I will be signing the contract for my new apartment that I will be renting. Uh, oh, very good. Which I'm very excited for. So. Uh, Wednesday through Sunday, I'll be uh, uh, busy with my dad and some other people that will be helping me with uh, mm. uh, getting that place. Where you mo- moving? Where are you moving there. to? What what it, uh, unpronounceable named town? <laughs> are you moving to? <laughs> I will be moving to Sittard. Yeah, see, I told you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm not even going to try that. I know we did this last time. I'm not even going to try it. I'm not even going to try it. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Anyway, I'm very well, excited to move there. This will be uh, the last uh, podcast episode I record before I move there. Um, and I hope to have oh, the yeah. internet set up properly uh, by the time I record the next one. But we'll yep. see about that. Hopefully. Um, yeah, and hopefully nothing goes wrong with this recording. <laughs> Otherwise, oh, Jesus, we're gonna be shit out of luck, right? <laughs> no, I will be we'll very be unhappy if this fucks up. Yeah, yeah, we'll do it over. We'll do it live. <laughs> I, uh, I could, I could do this for weeks. I'm, I'm neck deep in this thing. Oh yeah, yeah. You were uh, very excited to get started on this one. <laughs> we're not even at the Bolsheviks. We're not even God this. Damn. All right. Listen, I remember I, I prefaced the first episode with a warning, which I believe went, if you want to hear about the Bolsheviks or Trotsky or Stalin or Lenin, you're going to have to wait for a later episode to this yeah. episode is not that episode. <laughs> uh, I believe Lenin, the name in my notes is mentioned twice, oh, two geez. times. And I'll do a f- control find right now. Lenin twice, two times Trotsky. One time, Stalin, not once. (laughs) Not once. So this is not the episode for you if you want to hear about that. I didn't know this was going to happen. I didn't know we were going to go into this, but it's kind of obvious when you think about it. In order to talk about the Russian Revolution, 
we had to talk about 1905, right? You go, okay, reasonable, fair enough. When you talk about the American Revolution, you have to talk about the Stamp Act. You know, you got to talk about the Indian yeah. Wars. You got to yeah. talk about all the things that lead up to it, right? And these could be 30, 40 years beforehand. Well, there's more lead up than just 1905. We have to talk about, um, I guess to you, although maybe not to you specifically, but to the Europeans, we actually have to talk about, I, I guess, a pretty significant war. <laughs> Um, oh, you mean, which, uh, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe might have been important to Eastern <laughs> and Central Europe. Maybe I don't know. We'll find out, I guess. Yeah, uh, I were you guys you involved mean, uh, in World War One at all? Uh, <laughs> you guys nervous that the Germans are going to be like, "Fuck, they're coming over again." <laughs> they, <laughs> they always come through. They always come through our territory. Actually, uh, in World War One, we stayed entirely neutral, uh, mm-hmm. successfully. Um, That's good. And it was uh, difficult to do that. But you know why you probably did? Because you guys didn't have a monarchy. Um, We did have a monarchy, I think, at the time. Functioning? Well, I mean, not... Or just uh, like for show. Just for just show. Just for show, yeah. Yeah, just for show. Yeah, that doesn't... Yeah, though Spain was pretty uninvolved, too, even though they had one for show, I, I, yeah. I believe. But, yeah, a lot um, of for show, for show monarchs at this point. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a, a fun fact here. Uh, so in World War One, we stayed neutral, which was a bit difficult, not only because of the threat of the Germans right next door, uh, sure. but mainly because of trade relations. Because, I mean, for either party, you're trading with the enemy, which is kind of, right. you know, they don't appreciate that very much. Um, That's right. And, and also, can I mention that the Germans were going to war with the Belgians, like pretty hard, in World War One. Yes. So I'm sure people from the Netherlands were looking down, <laughs> being like, "Hey, oh, don't yeah. come up here." <laughs> yes. Um, and at first, we intended to uh, stay neutral in World War Two as well. Right, um, but you literally couldn't. No, we literally couldn't. The Germans wouldn't really have any part of that. Um, yeah. And then. Uh, Really, it was World War II when air superiority became important. Um, oh, you know what's interesting, though, is I didn't know this, but we're gonna actually going to get into that. Air superiority, oh. I briefly mentioned, air superiority in World War One. like the Russians kind of innovated a lot of it in World War One, which really? I didn't realize that. I, I agree with you. I, I would have thought, other than people like, I guess, the Red Baron, you know, you don't really think about many World War One plane stuff, but but it's there. It's there, and the Russians oddly exactly. are the ones who are doing a lot with it. Yeah, <laughs> so you will find that um, in World War II, the Dutch did not have air superiority. So mm-hmm. um, uh, essentially, the Dutch army, with quite a bit of success, defended the Netherlands um, from the Germans for something like three days or five days, um, but then. Uh, the Germans decided to uh, bomb Rotterdam. Uh, hmm. Just bomb the entire fucking city. Uh, it's such a low area, too. When you bomb yeah. something, I'm sure it's way more damaging. It's everything just sinks. Um, that's an interesting point. I'm not sure how much of a difference that made. Um, but anyway, the Dutch didn't really have any real air defense. Uh, hmm. let alone any real air force. Um, so there was just no real stopping the Germans from doing this, and thus they had to capitulate uh, 
uh, to the Germans, and with that, we were basically became uh, a German province during World War One. During World War One or World War Two? I mean, World okay, War yeah, we're, yeah. So uh, that brings us to the question: How many days did it take for the Nazis to overwhelm the Netherlands? Like, um, I believe something like three or five. Three or five days. Yeah, everybody always. What I didn't realize this, but um, everybody always talks about how Hitler managed to storm France and take over Paris yeah. in, in a few days, and blah 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 blah. But um, like you'll see when I start talking about Russia's part in World War One, that's pretty common, and I didn't realize that. But there must have been a period of time between old European cities existing and new military technology existing where you would just right. barrel through cities in a few days. And so Hitler doing that isn't, it's less surprising than I was figured it was because you see the Russians just barrel through Austria really easily, oh. really quickly. Uh, and then they're simultaneously pushed out really easily and really quickly. And then they simultaneously come back really easily and really quickly. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's a mess. Oh, it's a mess. Um, let's do this. Uh, but before we do, do you have any questions or do you want me to, do you want to jog my, the, the listeners memories or my memory about anything we did in the last one? Anything you're curious about, you forgot or I don't know, um, anything? Well, I mean, I still haven't had any opportunity to listen to the last one. Not in the least because I don't have the file. Oh, yeah, um, you don't have the files. Yeah. So I can't really jog anyone's memory about anything. Uh, That's right. I do do you remember anything at all on your own? <laughs> Barely. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> uh, good thing this is recorded. Good thing this is recorded. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll try and jog up. I mean, feel free to stop me and go, feel free to stop me and go, who is that? Who is that? Because a lot of these names, if I don't explain them, I'm pretty sure I've, the only names I chose to really mention are names that I've either explained in this episode or the previous. But obviously, right. if I explained them in the previous, I didn't mention them, explanations of them in this one. So if you get confused by who I'm talking about, stop me, please. Because this okay. is going to get... The last one was easy because it took place over the span of months of time, right? We would go <laughs> April, all right, yeah. now it's June, now it's July. This takes place over... You know, months. I mean, at first we'll be going year by year. It's pretty fast. But by the time we get to World War One, it's day by day. So if you get confused, uh, I'll do what I, I can. Just stop yeah. me. I will. All right. Um, now, yeah. before, we, before we're going, um, I do still have a question for you. I'm ready. All right. Uh, what, if anything, are you drinking today? Oh, nothing. Today's nothing. Today nothing. I haven't had a sip of anything. No. no. Not even water. Not a thing. No, not even water, which is definitely going to necessitate that we stop this at some point for our little pee and water break. But, you know, well, what happens that's very happens. Good because I need, a, I need a place for uh, an ad break. So this will be... Uh, oh, good. Well, I actually have a, a point where I say in the notes, stop. I don't know where uh, that is. Nice. But right. Well, oh, it's pretty. It's pretty. Uh, it's a, it's slightly over halfway through. Okay, that's actually pretty right. well timed. Okay, that's pretty. <clears> good. <throat> um, yeah. No, I'm uh, I'm drinking a uh, glass of Maker's Mark here. Uh, oh, good. Maker's Mark bourbon. Um, what did we have last time? Wine, I believe it was, and now it's Maker's. This is good. 
I think I might have had uh, Maker's Mark as well. Uh, oh, yes, that. you did. It was wine and Maker's because you were celebrating <laughs> finishing your thesis. That's right. No, That's no, right. no, no, no. That's, that was the Tulip Bubble episode. I was, was that all the way back at the tulip bubble episode? Yes. I'm so yes. confused. Actually, that's uh, another fun fact going on in my life. Next Wednesday, I will be getting the result um, of my thesis. So, Oh, good. So, we, so maybe by the time we record the third episode, we'll know. But it won't. that won't be released until several months from now. And so it won't matter. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. I don't have anything else. Let's get going. Okay, fine. So let's remember the 1905 re- revolution a little bit. So what ended up happening? Well. Uh, the October Manifesto was signed, and uh, uh, Nicholas was forced to um, remember Nicholas. Nicholas was forced to capitulate, really, for the second time in Russian history. The first time being when they had to get rid of serfdom in 1863. But that wasn't Nicholas; that was Alexander II. Right. Uh, Nicholas is forced to really capitulate in in the form of the October Manifesto, which. Uh, ensured more or less a a position for the monarchy in a new government uh, which would be a government established in public confidence aka the Duma uh, which I'm not sure how much of the Duma we spoke about last time because the Duma really only becomes relevant after 1905 when it's given real power in the government now the Duma is like a representative body you could think of it like the parliament except it's a lot smaller a lot more elite. Uh, there's mm. generals. There's not. It's not like academics or journalists. Not yet. It becomes that, but not yet. It's still generals and elites and nobility and all that kind of stuff. But it's a it's a, a move away from the czar's regime in, in terms of how power is distributed, and so it's 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 important. And with the October Manifesto in in being enforced by the Duma, which is the Octoberist faction in the Duma, I'll talk more about, but they basically committed themselves to making sure that a government is established, especially uh, uh, as soon as possible, though the war will stop that. Um, They want to establish a representative form of government and kind of move the Tsar into the same position that, you know, the English monarch is relegated to, the German monarch is relegated to. Um, So that's where we're at with the accomplishments of the people as far as the revolution of 1905 goes. And as the revolution of 1905 is cooling down, the Tsar's regime actually experiences a resurgence of patriotic spirit after its brush with death in the, in the Russo-Japanese War. We'll remember that, where they get absolutely <laughs> just beaten down, and that's actually what forces the Tsar to capitulate. Uh, political threats started to become contained, and now it was terrorism that started to flare up throughout the country, though not in too significant a, uh, a cloud. People started to rise up against police uh, and other servants of the regime, and uh, assassination campaigns were started by socialist revolutionaries, uh, and they would see the deaths of uh, something like 300 policemen, uh, the assaults of 827 uh 
Russian interior ministers, the interior ministry, obviously, which works directly for the Tsar, not for the Duma. Uh, and by 1907, something like 5,000 Tsarist officials lost their lives since the beginning of the Russo-Japanese War. Uh, but the void that was left in a lot of these assassinations couldn't be filled very easily, particularly Sergei Wheat, if we remember him, is more or less responsible for um, calming a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the Russian people out of serfdom, establishing the communal programs, uh, helping to build the Trans-Siberian Railway. But he was killed in a bombing assassination. Uh, and filling his position, you know, he was a relatively respected individual, uh, and filling his position was difficult. But eventually, the Tsar lands on the appointment of a rural nobleman whose name is Peter Stolopin. Uh, Stolopin is a loyalist to the Russian cause by his genetics. His family has served in the Russian regime uh, since before the Romanov family ascended to the throne in 1613. Uh, he makes his name in the Polish-Lithuanian territories as a man who could break up revolutionary gauntlets, arrest agitators, and convert unruly peasants into law-abiding subjects. And in the city of Kovno, he actually manages to consolidate the communal strips of land which were instituted after abolishing serfdom. Uh, the inconvenient administration of lands deemed that taxation had to be paid communally, and this process always stifled land development and entrepreneurship and most of Russia's economy was cashless. Uh, Stolpin succeeded in turning these communal strips into privately owned peasant land holdings. Stolpin's successes had netted him a promotion to the interior ministry, uh, actually to the promotion of the interior minister uh, in 1906 in July, where he would finally be able to apply his ideas to Russia as a whole. But before he could do that, he had to get law and order back into Russia and get rid of the terrorism. So just after a month of his appointment, uh, he which is infamously uh, uh, opposed by socialist revolutionaries. He narrowly survives a bomb blast that goes off at a public reception and kills 30 people and injures 32 more, including his own children. Uh, immediately after this, Stalpin invokes Article 87 of the Fundamental Laws that grants him a great deal of power without any recourse to the Duma, uh, the official government assembly that was given uh, capitulations in the wake of 1905. Uh, he expands martial law and he authorizes the military uh, to try terrorists in military courts. Obviously, these are courts that are on the spot and have no ability uh, for appeal, and most of the time, there's no prison sentences. Uh, Article 87 was invoked for around a year at that time, and nearly 1,000 supposed revolutionaries had been put to death via hanging, and the hangman's noose becomes colloquially known as Stolopin's necktie. Uh, the brutal brutality that Stalpin was known for might have been decried by liberals and socialists, but it actually began to ease revolutionary violence, and slowly but surely ranks of Marxists and socialist revolutionaries began to deplete. Most of the major figures who appear later in the story uh, are in exile. Trotsky and Lenin, both of them are in exile at this time, right. as well as Stalin. Uh, the depletion of oppositional forces was shot in the arm to the regime, which began to recover its spirits as violence quieted. Stalopin's methods of capitulating to the peaceful peasants while dealing with violence brutally uh, managed to disarm even ardent critics of the regime. One liberal commentator remarked, Thank God for the Tsar who saved us from the people. Good. Stalopin began to push for more laws in the Second Duma and had successfully enacted laws which protected the citizens from arbitrary arrest and enacted a progressive tax system which benefited, uh, extended benefits to state workers. Stalopin manages to uh, uh, get the Third Duma uh, into order 
and with prominent journalists such as and conservative deputies he packs the entire duma and they were all sympathetic to him and the regime a lot of them were actually on the payroll of the regime stalin even manages to campaign to grant civility to russian jews all russian jews but it's shot down by tsar alexander Law, uh, land reforms largely do succeed, and a new law frees Russian peasants from obligations to local communes, allowing for the setting up of enterprises to grow out of the communes. Private holdings could be created uh, by loans, similar to how communal strips were created with by loans, but these terms were a lot easier. And you could tell because 2.5 million Russian peasants immediately jump at the opportunity to start private land enterprises, which is nearly a fifth of the total peasant population of Russia. Uh, the last legal restrictions uh, on peasants' internal movements were abolished, and incentives were offered to, for two peasants to go out into the foreign lands of Siberia and Central Asia and cultivate. And nearly three million more peasants responded positively to those invitations, and many of them set off in great migration waves in 1908 and 1909. Uh, and this worked wonders for agricultural productivity, and in 1911, Russia was exporting a surplus of 13.5 million tons of grain which by this period jumped to 20 million tons of grain being shipped abroad. Stalin also began to revive state capitalism, ushering in a boom which was even more radical than the early reforms of Sergei Wheat. Sergei Wheat managed to get booms of 4 or 5% growth. Uh, railway lines uh, produced were spurred, just like they were in uh, Wheat's regime. And 300 million rubles were dedicated to finishing the last section of the Trans-Siberian Railway. Uh, Stalipin did way better than Wheat, where he actually managed to get 10% growth rates. So three times that of Wheat, which was seen as a huge boom at the time. Uh, in the cities, inequality between industrialists and workers grew rapidly, but worker wages were notice noticeably rising as living conditions improved. Stalipin also tried to play to the peasants by playing into orthodox sympathies among the peasants, uh, where he would commit tremendous amounts of money an effort to the church and used government funds to grow up 5,000 congregations, 5,500 new churches, and hired 100,000 priests. Uh, his gambit was a success, and Stalipin's Russia managed to fuse paternalism of the Tsar and church with the progressive regime, and the whole program had to rely on external peace, uh, which was gotten after the war concluded with Japan. And Stalipin specifically says, if you give the regime 20 years of peace, you will not recognize present-day Russia. And surprisingly, the Germans, who'd always had a tense relationship with the Russians, especially uh, as tensions were beginning to boil over between Austro-Hungary and the Baltic states, actually agreed with this. And they signed a declaration with the Russians that essentially amounts to a mutual stance of non-aggression. Stalpin's 20 years was off to a good start as it hummed along through two years. But the idyllic state Russia was forced, uh, that Russia was in was forced into a rude awakening after Stalipin, who was attending a play in Kiev, was gunned down by a young revolutionary, dying of his wounds just a few days later. The assassination comes with tremendous and devastating consequences for the Tsarist regime and the whole of Russian politics, which was now void of any figure who could match the stature of Stalipin or Wheat. And the successor to Stalipin, Vladimir Kotsakov, was a man who lacked any sense of action. Stalipin's land reforms were moving steadily by 1911, uh, operating relatively autonomously, and the boom had outlasted Stalipin for three or four more years. Uh, within days of Stalipin's death, Russia was faced uh, with an international crisis that threatened to shake the regime again. And on September 16th, 
uh, of Russia's Julian calendar, by the way. Uh, the Gregorian calendar is 13 days ahead, I believe. Uh, Italy has, and I'm going to be using mostly Julian, but I will try and specify the dates in Gregorian as well. Right. Uh, Italy had uh, declared war on the Ottoman Empire and invaded Libya. And the Turkish fleet was outmatched in the contest, so Ottoman leaders were forced to take drastic measures to defend Constantinople from naval bombardment. So aquatic mines and giant iron chains were laid across the Turkish Straits. And this happened to be the waterway that provided Russia's burgeoning export trade market with half of its income. So this proved to be a gigantic blow to the economy. The volume of Russia's imports, uh, or rather exports, dropped by a third within a few months, and heavy industry was ground to a halt. Uh, labor strikes and food shortages began to plague the nation as price competition with German wheat producers threatened to completely shut down Russia's global trade income. For the Interior Ministry, this dovetailed with the blocking of the Straits as Germany was always Europe's largest Ottoman supporter. And many Russian elites began to drift towards liberal imperialism and slowly towards the genesis of a war party. Uh, the situation in the Balkans had begun to deteriorate even worse as Ottoman hegemony was slowly being shaken off, and these troubles ultimately forced the Ottomans to sue Italy for peace, but not before Serbia had conquered much of Ottoman Macedonia and Albania. Austro-Hungary responded to this by mobilizing three army corps, and a Serbian-Austro-Hungarian uh, war ensues. Uh, Nicholas, who was very close to mobilizing his own armies, was cautioned off only by a few members of his interior cabinet, and peace continued for a little while longer. Pan-Slavic hysteria hit a fever pitch on the floor of the Fourth Duma, which was elected in October of 1912. Fi leading figures of the Duma included the center-right Octoberists, who were identified with a commitment to fulfill the Tsar's October Manifesto of 1905. The party was formed and operated by super-patriots such as the founder Alexander Guchkov, who fought against the British in the Boer War simply because he viewed the Brits as ancestral enemies to the Russians. Another imposing figure, Mikhail Rod, uh, Rodzianko, uh, was a chauvinistic pan-Slavist and he was constantly advising the Tsar to uh, take advantage of the general enthusiasm of war by seizing the Turkish Straits from the Ottomans. The Octoberists were a hawkish pan-Slavic party that campaigned heavily for Russian involvement against the Ottomans in the Balkans. Uh, they, uh, a caution was prevailing for a few years as Nicholas stepped into ban pro-war protests and reaffirmed a policy of patience in the Balkans. Uh, this is, had extended uh, Stalipin's proclamation for another two years, uh, but peace in Russia could not last for long. So things were breaking down when the German general Otto Lindemann von Saunders was appointed to the 1st Ottoman Army Corps, uh, which was responsible for defending the Turkish Straits. Russian ministers viewed this as a slap in the face. Uh, they viewed it as a deliberate insult, and Saunders' appointment would herald the uh, preparations for a Russian mobilization effort. France, which was in this weird quasi-alliance state with uh, Britain and Russia, had started to uh, extend military service requirements uh, between fr from two years up to three. And this added 170,000 troops to French garrisons, which had to be matched by the Germans, who had a garrison of 900,000. Uh, it brought the French garrison up to 827,000 in total. So Russia sees this, and they extend their own military services. Uh, this is called the Great Program. Uh, this drastically increases the size of the peacetime army to 2.2 million, three times as large nearly as the German army. Uh, this reform is well publicized and puts so much pressure on uh, German war planners 
who started talking openly about fighting a preemptive war against Russia before they got too strong. The Russian foreign minister, Sergei Sazanov, had managed to round up massive support for war with the Ottomans, relying on a split deal between the three Entente powers, again, that's France, Britain, and Russia, which would give Russia control over the Straits. But Britain's support could not be guaranteed, and so the plan had to be abandoned. But not every government official was so bellicose as Sazanov. Uh, Dernovo, P.N. Dernovo, a former interior minister who was instrumental in suppressing rebellions between 1905 and 1906 in the aftermath of the uprisings, had warned of the dangers posed by Russia's policy slowly drifting towards aggressive pan-Slavism in the Baltic. He uh, believed that war between Germany and Russia would destroy the social order of both countries, although the damage to Russia would be far worse owing to the fact that there was already so much internal revolutionary radicalism. Uh, he cautioned that Russia would be flung into anarchy such as that which she, which she suffered in the uh, aftermath of 1905. Genova's warnings were rebuked by the entire interior ministry, uh, and he was made an outcast in St. Petersburg's society, being labeled a Germanophile. Uh, Russia's public opinion was trending strongly downwards, and the war party was growing, and in June, on June 28th of 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand is assassinated in Sarajevo by a young Serbian terrorist, and Russian sympathies are predictably low. Uh, having endured Austro-German bullying in both the First Balkan War, when Austro-Hungarians mobilized those three army corps, and in the von Saunders crisis, where a German was preferred over a Russian to watch the straits, Russia was not apt to stand down again. And within an hour of receiving the news of Vienna's ultimatum to Serbia, Sazanov instructed Russia's chief of staff to make arrangements for mobilizing the entire country. And at that same time, the Council of Ministers convenes in the castle of Sarsko Selo, uh, which is the regime's summer palace, where Sazanov argues that Russian global prestige would be irreparably damaged if they didn't stand by the Serbs. So there wasn't a single voice in the parliament at this time uh, that stood in opposition to joining the war. And so Nicholas yeah. signs a measure into law that Sazanov recommends, which is basically Russia goes into total mobilization, and they issue a stern warning to Vienna that Serbians' fate could not leave Russia indifferent. Curiously enough, one of the Tsar's advisors, who the, the, the sorry, curiously enough, the only advisor to the Tsar who was opposed to the war had no official title or ranking. This was huh. Gregory Rasputin. Hey. The Siberian faith healer who had won the confidence of the Tsar and Tsarina owing to his ability, first displayed uh, during a visit to Alexander's palace in 1907 to alleviate the pain of the hemophiliac heir to the throne, Lexi, uh, whenever the boy was injured. Uh, there was an incident that occurred in Spala in October of 1912 that had been so serious that the government was forced for the first time ever to reveal to the public that the heir was gravely ill. Although the nature of his ailment remained a state secret, uh, it was uh, they, could, because there was fears that um, there was would be no confidence in the blood of the actual autocrat. So they they kept the fact that he had hemophilia secret, but that he was gravely ill. They finally told. Although, if you'll recall, at the beginning of the first episode, I talk about the crowds who see him sick, you know, fainting over. So. People knew he was sick for a long time, but it yeah. is big for such a quiet regime to come out with this. So. In the fall of 1913, Rasputin tells the St. Petersburg Gazette that Russia should not encourage discord and hostility in the Balkans. And he said, as long as I live, I will not permit war. 
And had Rasputin been at the court meetings in Sarskoselo, he might have actually been able to persuade Nicholas into holding his ground, but he was nowhere to be found. When news broke from Sarajevo, Serena Alexandra sent uh, Rasputin an urgent message that warned uh, that the council was working to threaten Germany with war. And Rasputin leaves his house and rushes to the train station where he is stabbed in the stomach and left to bleed profusely. Rasputin survives the assault, but he was unable to participate in the decision-making process of the government because of his confinement to a hospital bed for the entirety of the month. Russia fully committed to war mobilization, and a war effort against Germany began, and they urged Serbia not to give in to Austro-Hungarian ultimatums. Uh, Nicholas's confidence was shaken just before the breakout of the conflict when he received an infamous telegram from Kaiser Wilhelm, his cousin, where the German expressed doubts about his support for the Austro-Hungarian war effort. These are, I don't know if, I'm sure a, lo- a lot of people have heard of the, the Willie Nicky letters. Um, but if you haven't, go and look up the Willie Nicky letters because they're uh, fascinating. It's literally the two of these guys who are cousins. And I mean, we talked about this, cousins on both sides yeah. of the family. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they, the way they speak to one another is like how you would speak to your cousin, but these are two of the most powerful leaders in Europe at the time. And it is amazing that Wilhelm is going, you know, I'm backing the Austro-Hungarians because of my alliance with them, but this is going to end in disaster. And it ends in even worse disaster than Wilhelm would probably have been able to predict because we know what World War I does to Germany. Uh, so anyway, Nicholas confines himself to his office after he sees these letters and he refuses to see his war minister or his chief of staff because he already knew they were convinced and that they would urge him to mobilize immediately. He didn't want to mobilize immediately. He wanted to mobilize slowly over time because he knew that tensions could actually go downward or the situation in the Balkans could get to the point where uh, it would be handled by other means, but this wasn't likely. And so he invites Sazanov in, you know, the only person who he believed was uncommitted to the war effort, but he was wrong. <laughs> and Sazanov had been committed the whole time and just hadn't told him. Uh, he was pressed for mobilization. And a day after the meeting, he was forced uh, to order a general mobilization of the Russian army. And the countdown to war had begun. And that countdown ends two days later when the Germans mobilize. So Stolpin's uh, uh, prophecy of two decades of peace was not fit to last and expires just short of the five-year mark. Uh, marred by constant diplomatic turmoil, Sarajevo represents a straw that breaks the Siberian camel's back. Uh, the warnings of Stolpin, Wheat, Dernovo, and Rasputin, men whose fates were, and I'll read them respectively, assassination, assassination, social alienation, and a near-death coma that leads to an assassination, goes on deaf ears. Rasputin hears about the mobilization being declared and tears off his bandages in the hospital, wildly dictating an urgent telegram to Nicholas that prophesizes the end of Russia and the Romanov dynasty. Uh, Despite ever-growing threats of labor riots and the possibility of supply lines breaking down, Russian mobilization goes relatively easily. A nationalistic fervor sweeps over Russia as they are united under a common enemy, their vision which was fueled by Germanophobic sentiment. Tsar Nicholas, announcing the mobilization from his balcony, was met with tumultuous cheers and roaring approval. The politicians of the Duma even set aside their differences in an expression of solidarity with the Tsar's government. Although draft riots were recorded in 17 of Russia's uh, of Russian Europe's 50 provinces, these riots were not large and mostly devolved into small violent mobs who committed anti-Jewish and anti-German pogroms. Uh, contrary to Germany's hope that Russia would be slow enough to mobilize, 
so that they could knock France out before Russia got to eastern Poland. The Russian army under Pavel Renenkampf actually crosses German territory as early as August 17th, just nine days after they mobilize. The army wins its first engagement in Gumbinen just two days later. The Berliner general Maximilian von Pritzwitz, who commands the German 8th Army, is advised to make a full retreat behind the Vistula River, but this directory is overruled and Pritzwitz is fired. The Russians ironically suffered their first reversal in the Austro-Hungarian front, where they possessed a numerical superiority. The Habsburg descendant and German chief of staff Konrad von Hotzendorf orders the German 1st Army to launch an invasion into Galicia. But six Russian armies were currently amassing in the region, and so von Hotzendorf cautiously pulls back. The capital of Habsburg, Galicia, Lemberg, falls to Russians on, October tw on August 20th, just a week after Russia enters Austrian territory. After Pritzwitz is fired, the command of the East Prussian armies was given to Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg, a name which, if you're familiar with Hitler's rise to power, is very familiar, and another name, which is very familiar, uh, his staff officer, Eric Ludendorff. Ludendorff is such an interesting character because, if you know Hindenburg, Hindenburg is eventually pressed into giving Hitler all the power. And Ludendorff, who was an early supporter of the Nazi regime, eventually turns on Hitler and publicly in like 1935, something like that, says that Hitler is like a vile man who will lead Germany to its destruction. And Hitler goes to his house on his 70th birthday and promotes him to field marshal so that he could win him oh. over again. Right. Who the fuck has Hitler done that to? Yeah. <laughs> That needs to just put you into an understanding of the respect that Ludendorff currently possesses among the Germans, and you'll find out why. Because I'm about to read uh, his greatest victory uh, that Germany has probably in the entirety of the war. So, uh, well informed about the enemy positions uh, by Germany's burgeoning aerial reconnaissance, and there you go with the air again. Now uh, Germany's using its uh, air power to uh, right. oversee the Russian yeah. positions. Uh, but as well as the interception of enemy dispositions and radio messages, Ludendorff is able to reroute the German 8th Army by rail and direct it up to Eastern Prussia, there would, where they would meet a force roughly equal to their own. And on August 13th of the Julian calendar, which would be August 30th of the Gregorian, Russian General Alexander Samsonov was bested as his lines were forced to retreat. In his retreat, both of the flanks were broken down and the center was penetrated. Uh, as he's retreating, uh, he's overcome with grief, shoots himself in the head. Uh, the Battle of Tannenberg, as it's so christened by the Germans as an allusion to the nearby battlefield where Teutonic knights wrestled control of the region from the native Balto-Slavic Old Prussians, uh, it was a tremendous victory for the Germans. And the situation had now switched. Uh, whereas... Russia used to see, uh, whereas Russia was uh, used to see more success on the German front, they had now seen more success on the Austro-Hungarian front, as they were forcing General von Hotzendorf into a full retreat, 150 miles farther back behind the Carpathian Mountains. His armor, right. his army suffered terribly: 100,000 dead, 100,000 captured, and a quarter of a million injured. The Habsburg armies were crumbling in Austro-Hungary as the Russians were losing in Germany. 
But in Hungary, it becomes clear that the Russian army's casualty rate, which is nearly 40%, goes up between uh, August and December to about a million prisoners of war being lost on top of that. Uh, the burn rate is estimated to be something like 300,000 losses per month, which is a pace that no country would be able to keep up, certainly not Russia. And so as with all other nations involved, Russia thought it was going to have a quick and easy time with the war. The regime actually needed a short and victorious war in order to ride the wave of nationalism that was keeping it together. A long war was expected as evidenced by Nicholas's placing a ban on alcohol and, quote, female company during the conflict <laughs> in September had already faded away in December uh, as alcohol was being served in increasing quantities and women were seen at military camps. Uh, in terms of material advantages, Russia had finally dis Russia's had finally disappeared by December of 1914 as ammunition and shell stocks were virtually exhausted. Russia's factories were hard-pressed to resupply them as the Ottomans once again had blocked the Turkish Straits, closing Russia off from her suppliers. Back in the capital, Mikhail Rajanko uh, was continuing to stir anti-German fervor among the common people and elites. He claimed that there were traitors in the Russian war industry, German sympathizers who enjoyed protection from the courts, and Germanophobia descends over St. Petersburg again and culminates in a, in a, a chaotic, oh that's hard, a chaotic <laughs> pogrom on May 29th, Julian, which is July 11th, Gregorian. Over 500 stores owned by Germans and Jews broken into, looted, burned down. Countless factories are burned down and countless people are beaten violently by mobs. Yeah, it's odd how uh, basically any form of, uh, of of hatred or, or like general xenophobia, so Germanophobia in this case, somehow goes paired with um, anti-Semitism. The Jews always get blamed for it. I don't know why that is this time around because I don't know it, it didn't say in the book I don't I don't know why the anti-semitism was connected with anti-germanism because as far as I know at this time like Germany is also becoming a pretty anti-semitic country I mean <laughs> it wasn't it was probably the least anti-semitic country in Europe for most of its history but obviously right. you know Eric Ludendorff is an infamous anti-semite uh, I mean so right. much so that probably as bad as Hitler and certainly <laughs> a precursor to Hitler um, so, so by the, this period of time, you know, the Germans are super anti-Semitic. So I don't know where that comes from. Honestly, the Russians might have just had so much anti-Semitism that they just use this as an opportunity. Um, so I don't know. But anyway, Grand Duke Nicholas, uh, who is the cousin of Tsar Nicholas, signs off on an expansionary measure that forces Jews and Germans who currently live in the zone of military administration into other areas. And nearly half a million Jews and 250,000 Germans are expelled from their homes, and many of them are forced to move into the harsh Volga region, which if you know your Russian or German history, and you know about the German and Jewish Volgas during uh, Hitler's period, you know that it really only continues to get worse for them. But that's a different episode bonus yeah. episode perhaps actually there's a really good episode i don't know if it was dan carlin or the other guy who does a really good history show the mainstream history shows and they talk about the volga germans so people go look that up it's a really interesting episode any hoozle in austria-hungary things are going from bad to worse and germany is forced to begin seriously propping austria up supplying them with the genius of the german general august von Mackensburg, who commands the new 11th army just southeast of the still Russian city of Krakow, uh, Mackensen uh, amasses a significant preponderance of local support, gathering 
men two to every one Russian. Uh, the Russians were crushed by superior firepower as more than 700 artillery guns were wheeled onto the field, unplagued by a shortage of oil or shells. Uh, Russian moral support begins to crack uh, as they are unable to be properly supplied with troops or ammunition. And noticing this lack of commitment, uh, Mackensen directs his armies to march directly towards the l gaps in the Russian lines. Uh, Germany soon is breached uh, as the last defensive perimeter on the Wislock, and soon Mackensen uh, is joined by four Austro-Hungarian armies, and within three days the Russian army is forced into full retreat back 200 miles. So back back to beyond to where they were able to push them in the first place. If you'll remember, the hard-fought city of Lemberg uh, falls back into German hands in two more months. So Russia's reeling, and a conflict squeezes another half, or rather quarter of a million troops out of them. Uh, many more are lost to imprisonment. Uh, it's the greatest victory that the Central Powers have so far, and it's Russia's greatest defeat. So Alexander Guchkov, let's go back into the city. Yeah. Alexander Guchkov, who leads the 4th Duma in 1912, and was responsible for leading the Red Cross on the Russian front, uh, returns to St. Petersburg after he's tasked with finding the body of Alexander Samsonov, the general who kills himself in retreat. Uh, Guchkov, who had been under near-constant police surveillance, was a member of a Masonic order known as the Grand Orient of the Peoples of Russia. And he, along with many other members of this group, would eventually go on to dominate Russia's post-regime provisional government. Upon his return, he had organized various meetings with other Duma party members and Octoberist sympathetics. Uh, the group that was once aligned with a commitment to work with the Tsarist regime was slowly and painfully reaching a conclusion that Tsar Nicholas was absolutely unfit to continue his rule. Kuchkov institutes a shadow government uh, without the effective knowledge of the Tsar. Uh, after gathering a great deal of support from the Duma and among the Council of Ministers in St. Petersburg. So while he's managing to acquire both of their supports, he also manages to give the Russian productive sector a boost. I'm going to read a lot of numbers here, but listen right. to what he manages to do with his shadow government while, uh, <laughs> I don't know, the Tsar is twiddling his fingers. <laughs> in uh, his summer palace. New trade deals are secured and factories had begun operating again. Boots, uniforms, bullets, shells, weapons, vehicles, and oil was now traveling out to the front lines and into the cities being cranked out uh, in a tremendous pace. A turnaround occurs uh, and it was dramatic. 28 million three-inch rounds were produced in 1916 as opposed to 11 million the previous year. Monthly totals were even more dramatic as 358,000 shells were produced in 1915, whereas in the current year, 2.9 million were being produced. Uh, although Russia was still import heavy, uh, they managed to uh, have a great shift of resources from domestic production to the war effort. And thousands of new corporations were chartered as St. Petersburg's stock markets soared. 1915 seemed like decades ago. The mobilization of such a vast amount of resources in such a short period of time was met with unrest, of course, because the increase of a focus on, on uh, domestic production to the war effort was met with windfall of profits for a few and not much for others. To make matters worse, Russia abandoned its gold standard and began printing more money. Uh, wheat harvests were in decline owing to poor weather. And not unique to Russia, frontline troops were eating far better than urbanites for two reasons. One, they were given the obvious priority. And two, because they were garrisoned much closer to the food-growing regions of Belarus and the Ukraine. Sorry, Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've been reading so many 
like old Russian documents where they all refer <laughs> to it as the Ukraine. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> shortages were bad, particularly for milk and cheese, which had virtually disappeared from St. Petersburg. Politicians wasted no time using the high emotions uh, to exploit uh, the occasion for their own purposes. Uh, the convening of the Duma, which occurred on the 1st of November in 1916, that's Julian, which is the 14th of November Gregorian, uh, was the site of a dramatic clamor. Rajanko took the time to lambast his opposition, uh, drawing the internal battle lines which were to come. So Rajanko leaves the building after Boris Stumer, a German-Russian Duma diplomat, ostentatiously storms out himself after being insulted one too many times. And the French and British ambassadors, disgusted by the display, also leave. So with the government's reign representatives in the hall gone, the hall was open to looser yeah. tongues. And the firebrand socialist revolutionary Alexander Kerensky refers to Rajanko and Stumer, as well as many other government men, as hired killers and betrayers of the country's interests. He charges them with treason, fratricide, and cowardice. And he points out Rasputin as the Germans' inside mastermind that he <laughs> believed was manipulating the government into an action. Kerensky's speech was so incendiary that he was threatened with expulsion if he didn't sit down, and Kerensky took his seat, but much of the damage was done. Rajanko, curiously, although it actually makes sense, Rajanko prevents these conversations from being printed out to the press. He keeps them all secret. The czar can't hear about them. People outside the hall don't hear about them for a very long time. And it's interesting because, you know, Rajanko himself is taking a tremendous amount of heat being called a German sympathizer, uh, a coward. But the things Rajanko says <laughs> at the same time <laughs> are so treasonous that it's probably better off that they leave everything said in the hall. And so they do for a little while. But Kerensky manages to speak a lot of this out in public, and Austrian newspapers begin echoing the sentiments uh, which were approved uh, by pro-German cliques within the Russian government that they were revolving around the Tsarina. So now, the fervor on the inside of the Duma is echoed on the outside because Kerensky goes out and talks about it, but now German and Austrian newspapers pick up on it, and they too say, well... If we want to destabilize this country, let's play into it. So they start playing into the idea that there's this weird pro-German clique around the Tsarina, who, of course, herself is a native German. Uh, and so a German newspaper actually insinuates that Stumer, you know, the guy who storms out because he was insulted too many times, his private secretary was a German agent. Now, that's an insinuation. It's not true. But a German newspaper, who really would have very little knowledge of that, uh, yeah. makes the claim. Uh, to add to this effect, Russian politician Milyukov reads headlines out in German. <laughs> Foreign languages were banned from use in the Duma, by the way. Uh, sinister okay. rumors of treachery and treason, Milyukov says in German uh, in his speech to the Duma. Uh, and it became a reality for thousands of people living in the city. Libelous rhetoric became common as the government was incapable of persecuting the hundreds of thousands of people who now, pers who now repeated Milyukov and Kerensky's rumors. Reactionary deputy Vladimir Perishkevich went so far in a Duma meeting as to openly encourage the murder of Rasputin. And with the food and milk situation in the capital being real, that wasn't really what drove the men in the Duma to their demonization of the Tsarist regime, was it? The Duma politicians were mostly not with want, and frankly, the three Rasputin assassins were young, rich, handsome noblemen who were not driven by hunger either. 
Of they course. were anti-regime factions, and they began to show their hand as more and more of them piled in with vicious anti-Tsarist rhetoric. Their goal, of course, was not to root out corruption or improve Russia's standing in the war. It was simply to increase their own power, and they would get what they were asking for. But let's take a break. All right. I have a guy, um, uh, Boston Makes the News. He uh, recently started up his own podcast. I think oh, nice. uh, starting or by yesterday, like the time we recorded yesterday, uh, mm-hmm. he actually published his interview with uh, Joe Jorgensen. Uh, oh, cool. Very cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's pretty good at this whole podcasting shit already. Sure, um, sure. And, uh, yeah, he makes some fucking hilarious commercials. And what is his and What is his name and what is the name of the podcast? Uh, he goes by Boston uh, on Boston? Twitter. Yeah, just Boston. Uh, and his um, uh, podcast name is Boston Makes the News. Uh, all right. I have my stop mark here. How many words do we have left out of curiosity? Give me one second. I'm going to calculate this for the listeners. Hi, listeners. Uh, it's me, <laughs> your boy. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the presentation so far. I know that a lot of these names are names you're not going to remember, names you didn't expect to hear today. But it's interesting, right? Isn't it crazy how things just keep going back and fucking forth? <laughs> this is like, it's just unlike the other revolutions where they're cut and dry and simple and easy yeah. to explain what happened and why, because most of it was military. Most of them were aristocrats. These aren't exactly. aristocrats, a lot yeah. of these guys. These are like powerless government academics and nobility. And the only person who has any power at all is extremely passive <laughs> right now. And yeah. so nothing much happens. It's very, very strange. But uh, thanks for sticking with us so far, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> Let's get over to part two. Ah, where the hell is part two? Ah, there we are. You found ah, it? <laughs> so the, I did. I did. So the winter of 1917, so that's where we're placed. Winter of 1917 was one of the... No, no, no. Wait a minute. That has to be the winter of 1916. I'm sorry. That would be weird because 1917 is when it all happens. <laughs> The winter of 1916 uh, was one of the most savage on Russia's records, Fahrenheit, below 20 degrees Fahrenheit, which for you, uh, I'm yes. going to supply that for you now. Yes, Celsius. please, do that. <laughs> our, our, li- our listeners might know that uh, minus 20 Fahrenheit is cold I mean, as minus shit. Minus 20 Fahrenheit, you might just call that minus, minus 20 dick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much, because uh, Celsius is minus 28. <laughs> Oh, That's Jesus. what it would be. So it's very it's cold. Fucking awful. Jesus. And not only Christ. is it very cold, but it stays that way for weeks. Streets are constantly blanketed with snow and train lines are forced to stop and the city is more or less ground to a complete halt, frozen in place, with little to do beyond look for the frozen corpse of Grigory Rasputin, which was <laughs> dumped under the Petrovsky Bridge. Liberal oh, commentators. He's dead. Liberal commentators rejoiced the assassinations, but many commentators uh, were horrified as the czar was. One wounded soldier in a hospital once joked, uh, "The only peasant. There was only one peasant who ever made his way up to the czar, and so the nobles killed him." Uh, Nicholas was horrified to learn that his own nephew was involved in the plot, 
uncovering letters between the three conspirators, which revealed many Duma leaders congratulating the assassins on a job well done. The most significant of these came from the wife of Duma president, Mikhail Rajenko. Fatalism sets in uh, at Zarskoselo, the imperial palace of St. Petersburg, where Nicholas had written, All that is is in God's hands, his will be done. Rajanko is agitated by the Tsar's inaction, visits him two days later in order to compel him to act, shaking him from his lethargic stance. Uh, but Nicholas had almost completely broken down, pressing his head between his hands and asking God if his entire 22-year reign had been a mistake. Probably. Alexander yeah. Guchkov, probably. If <laughs> 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 he wanted to abdicate years ago, it was probably a better idea. Uh, Alexander Guchkov was no longer willing to wait for the Tsar's passivity to turn into action, and he and other Octoberists had finally begun open talks of deposition. He began petitioning generals to help him institute a kind of military dictatorship or coup d'etat, arguing Russia was too anarchic a nation for her to follow the same model of other European revolutions, such as in France, where the Parisian working class, the sans-culottes, sat back and allowed the politicians to operate once the monarchy had been removed. He writes, I fear that those who will make the revolution will themselves head the revolution, and how right he would become. <laughs> Could not persuade everybody, chiefly not Rajanko, but he managed to gather enough support that a committee was put together to organize the terms of Nicholas II's abdication. At no point yet was Nicholas uh, informed of any of this. It was agreed by the committee that the abdication process would be as follows. In order to bring about a smooth transition away from the absolute autocracy, to abdicate, uh, the abdication would occur and G Grand Duke Michael, the Tsar's brother, would be placed as the regent of Tsar Alexei, the young son of Nicholas. Uh, along with this, a, quote, government of public confidence would be established, essentially bringing about the creation of the same kind of handicapped monarchy which Britain and Germany had possessed, a declawed constitutional one. It was planned that, uh, because the security was too tight at Sarskoselo and Stavka, the two residences of the Tsar, the Tsar would have to be stopped along the train ride on the way, where he would be coerced into abdication. It was indicative of a feverish political atmosphere that by the time uh, a palace coup had been organized, there was already another elite faction organizing another palace coup. This Fuck, one, yeah. led by G Prince Georgi Lvov, LVOV, some Russian listeners, please in the comments tell me how to pronounce that properly, who <laughs> was the head of the Zemgor, which was an all Russian union of Zemsvos. If you remember, Zemsvos were like worker unions, similar to Soviets, but still under the control of the government, whereas Soviets were worker organized. Lvov descends from a ruling dynasty of Yaroslavel, a small town associated with the rise of Mikhail Romanov, and he was a gentry class trader in the tradition of such high-born political radicals as Mikhail Bakunin and Alexander Herzen. So basically, he was a communist sympathetic uh, right. who came from uh, the wealthy. Actually, most of these guys were pretty much communist sympathetics who came from the wealthy. Uh, that's the only way they were ever going to be able to get in positions of power in the first place. Uh, so uh, this uh, so during the political crisis in the fall of 
1915, Lvov writes an extraordinary letter to Nicholas which blends over-the-top obsequiousness by calling him Your Imperial Majesty, Russia looks to you at these fatal years for a sign, with the imperiousness of demanding that Russia's sovereign, in order to save the country from an abyss, surrender his authority entirely to the government of public confidence. The Tsar did not deign to reply. Falling, failing to persuade the Tsar, uh, Lvov forces his hand and he takes uh, note of treasonous German blocks that form around the Tsarina. He would convince Grand Duke Nicholas, the cousin of the Tsar, to assume the throne. So now you have on the one hand Grand Duke Michael, the brother, and Grand Duke Nicholas, the cousin, who are both going to be assuming the throne on different sides of this. Uh, the Tsarina, of course, because of her German sympathies, would be exiled to Crimea. The Russian regime was impotent, incompetent, and unable to direct the nation, and yet the Tsar's complacency was managing to line up better with Russian interests than liberal hysteria did. Morale was extremely high in Russian command because of the successes of campaigns in the spring. Remember, they're still in the midst of World War I as this is occurring. Intelligence confirms that the Central Powers would be shortly crushed as their supply lines were finally beginning to crumble, and Russia now en enjoyed a 60% advantage in both man and guns. There was little right. to no signs of defeatism on the German front, where many letters sent home from soldiers displayed cheerful spirits. Only 19 out of the 151,963 letters sent home from ordinary soldiers in the fall of 1905 listed complaints about food rations, and only 22 of those listed complaints about winter clothing, even in the brutal weather. The officer corps was even in higher spirits, and far from buying into liberal hysteria and propaganda, the officer corps disagreed that change needed to be made at the top. <laughs> Out of the 16,512 officer letters sent home in the same period of time, only 17 criticized the conduct of war in a serious way, which is pretty good for a bunch of military guys, <laughs> if you think about it. Uh, while some officers may have chosen to self-censor, this likely isn't the case and likely wouldn't have affected as much because in other periods of war, Russian soldiers are allowed to write letters that display tremendous amounts of blunt and unambiguous criticism. So few simply chose to spoke this way. They, they, they simply didn't believe that things were that bad. Defeatism was actually growing on the Austro-German side, and in early 1917, many Russian soldiers noted in letters how they were struck by the number of Germans who had come across the battlefield to beg for food. German oh. deserters almost uniformly agreed that hunger was their main reason for leaving. And while in some cases, Russian soldiers would indeed trade cigarettes for bread, uh, the atmosphere in most places was not nearly as friendly. One Russian soldier laughed, now that our roles have reversed, uh, rather, now that our roles have been reversed. Last year we were retreating, but now the Germans are preparing to run away. Another wrote to his wife, quote, We hear that there is talk among the people on your side, that is, back at home in Russia, uh, that there is talk of peace. But among us, we only talk about an upcoming offensive. When new... Oh, oh. When we finally beat the Prussians... Clear out Poland, take Krakow and Berlin, then there will be peace. German trenches were raided, revealing huge stores of beer and cognac. So while the Germans were short on bread, they were not wanting for pork, sausage, and booze. As can be imagined, acquiring these comforts did nothing other than spur the Russian army. The Russian yeah. Navy, too, was in far better shape. 
uh, morale-wise than it was than the German or Ottoman ones. And unlike in 1905 uh, and the Potemkin situation, <laughs> where the Black Sea fleet had been confined to an activity, uh, the Black Sea fleet was this time active in its naval theater because the most of the conflict was happening in the Baltic. Uh, and so they see great successes between 1914 and 1917. And in 1916, the Russians had sunk four German submarines. Remember, this is 1916, not 1930. <laughs> four German submarines is huge. Three yeah. Turkish torpedo boats, three Ottoman gunboats, and 16 steam transports and tugs, along with 3,000 sailing colliers. You know, the little boats that transport ships yeah. back and forth, uh, or troops. Uh, in conditions of constraint, successful action, the uh, discipline problems of 1905 seemed like a distant memory. Here's a reading from Sean McMeekin's book, The Russian Revolution, A New History, because he puts this better than I could have, and there's lots of numbers. <clears throat> Still... The image many of us have from popular histories of a hungry working class populace driven over the edge by spiraling bread prices does not accord with material facts. There were few signs of burgeoning labor unrest in Russia in early 1917. In May and June of 1916, 200,000 workers had walked out for an average of six and a half days, but there was only a fraction of as many in November and December, which saw about 30,000 laborers uh, take uh, walks for only an average of two and a half days. Since 1905, there had been sympathy strikes in St. Petersburg every year for the anniversary of Bloody Sunday, uh, but in January of 1917, these were smaller than they ever had been by an order of magnitude. Significantly, the German Foreign Office actually subsidized the January uh, 1916 strikes and spent a million rubles doing so. They did not finance any strikes in 1917. The food picture in St. Petersburg was improving, but was far from perfect, and yet, at no time did the city's grain reserves drop below a 12-day supply. In fact, no one had any inkling of what was about to transpire in Petrograd, that's St. Petersburg. Not the frontline troops, not the Tsar and his advisors, not the liberal society, not allied ambassadors, not the German strike subsidizers, not Lenin, who's in Switzerland, and, as indicated by surging bond prices, not the millions of foreigners who had invested in the Tsar's regime in Paris, London, and New York. When most people in Petrograd were talking about was not a shortage of bread crisis, but political gossip, centered around the palace plots against the throne, observed warily by Russia's secret police, the Okhrana. So, we have this depiction of Russia as, uh, especially during this time, as, you know, peasant-led. I mean, I remember you asked me earlier on in the first episode, like, why, what's with the schools, right? Yeah, why were there so the many students being involved? Yeah. And it's true, students were largely involved. But the reason why students were largely involved is because this is not a peasant revolt <laughs> at all, by any means. It, it's simply not a peasant revolt. The people who were complaining the most were liberals. They were city people, urbanites. The urbanites were the ones who were suffering because their food was being sent to the front lines, because they had these weird delusions that Germans were taking over the country, which was fueled <laughs> by the war party. But the peasants, more or less, there was very little difference in the way that they lived. And so our, at least the American understanding, which is, you know, of course, we always think about the Bolsheviks and how they were a vanguard party, right? But, but it had to get to that. How did it get to that? Oh, because of peasant revolts. No, no, no. 1905 was a peasant revolt. This is not peasant revolts at all. This is 
top-down led many different factions vying for sovereign power at this point so our old idea which we were sold in america from when this started up until now <laughs> is just wrong we, we right. there were there was never any indication that peasants were leading this that peasants were the worst suffering in this in fact peasants and soldiers you know the two groups that make up well sorry soldiers are one peasants do not peasants <laughs> are complaining very little whereas soldiers yeah. aren't complaining much either so those are two essential groups and both of them seem to be doing just fine. So anyway, we'll go now to 1917. We were talking about the winter of 1916, how, it, how, how, how the weather broke. Now in 1917, Lvov's plot finally fizzles out and Guchkov is under such uh, a police watch that he's unable to get his plans moving forward. Uh, worker groups in the absence of senior Bolshevik and Menshevik members who were still largely in political exile were, were unable to do very much other than uphold a platform of socialist agitation against the regime, but even these groups were penetrated by the secret police. The constant ebb and flow of the past few years looked like it was finally settling and the tides of war were lowering. Uh, poised for a spring offensive that they believed would overmatch the central powers, Nicholas and his government appeared ready to seal the deal and notch a surprising victory into their history. But he would not be so lucky. So the political landscape completely changes in uh, 1917 as the weather breaks. Uh, the most brutal winter on record finally warmed up to 46 degrees Fahrenheit, which is, uh, I'm not going to search it up, but for the Celsiites, only maybe a little warmer than cold. <laughs> I, but, but, but to the Russians who just came out of you know, minus 20 Fahrenheit, this is quite warm. The weather breaks coincidentally on International Women's Day, which is February 22nd in the Julian and March 7th in the Gregorian. Side note, I did not know this until researching this, but International Women's Day is a Russian socialist holiday that later gets adopted into global standards. I had no idea. I thought it was a new holiday, but it's from like 1906. <laughs> well, it's a very old holiday. No idea. I, I can't no say clue. I'm surprised that... Uh... It's the Russians that invented, or, well, not so much the Russians, but the fucking commies that invented <laughs> International Women's Day. No, see, that's where you're wrong. These aren't the commies yet. <laughs> These aren't the commies yet. That was the, remember, 1906 is still peasants. Yeah. <laughs> it's still peasants. Yeah. It's, I didn't know that. I had no idea. Obviously, it's a socialist holiday, of course, because most of the peasants were socialists, but very few were communists at this time. Um You'll see the communists start to show up when everybody's favorite angry Santa Claus is shipped back from Switzerland over to Russia to uh, <laughs> foment rebellions which were paid for by the German crown. Um, that's Lenin, so <laughs> we'll get to him sure. later. That's, that'll, that'll be three mentions of Lenin in this episode. So, at first the mood is relatively festive, but this is where it starts to pick up. Cossack cavalrymen were on patrol. We'll remember... I, actually, before I continue... Let me just go back. Let me just go back. Right. Let's remember 1905. Let's remember 1905 and what happens yeah. in St. Petersburg. The Cossacks and the police will remember it begins when a line of men, women, and children are marching forward towards the capital to serve Tsar Nicholas with the October Manifesto. Ah, right. They're walking, they're walking, and what are they confronted by? A line of Cossacks and police. Cossacks and police fire on the crowd and it kicks off this chaos in the city that when I was writing it, my, my heart was palpitating. It was ridiculous. There's thousands of people are killed in the span of a single day. Um, 
So let's remember that as we talk about this. Cossacks this time are very, very uh, um, against molesting the crowds uh, because it includes such a high volume of women and children, even in a way that the, the riots of 1905 did not, which right. were largely worker-led. Uh, citizen, uh, sorry, city officials were taken aback by the size of the demonstrations, which attracted more than 100,000 people to start. And the Cossacks' reluctance to intervene in the protests gave the protests a sense of ease, and the situation did not appear to be violent. Frank Golder, an American historian in St. Petersburg at the time, noted that he was forced to do his work at night because the streets, the streets were so crowded during the day he couldn't get to the library. Protests began to take a darker turn on February 24th of the Julian calendar when workers in Vyborg province began to strike. Bread supplies were actually running short as they lacked fuel for bakeries. The workers in Vyborg joined the protests in the city and the crowd swelled to 160,000 people. Uh, the police and Cossack brigades attempted to stem the inflow uh, of people across the Neva River, but people simply began to walk across the frozen parts of the river. Uh, the protest uh, movement lacks political direction, though, and it kind of just walks back and forth in an unorganized and miscellaneous way with very few people carrying red flags. The situation does grow tenser on Saturday the 25th when crowds swell to an enormous 200,000 people. Newspapers were shut down for the strike, and so rumors began to run rampant. It was said that blood was spilled overnight in various locations around the city, and this included in a covered shopping bazaar known as Gostiny Dvor, where it was said three were killed and ten were wounded. In Vyborg, the district, the district chief of police was reportedly dragged off his horse and beaten nearly to death with iron hooks. Cossacks had hacked a policeman to death after he had reportedly fired on them for disobeying his orders to disperse the crowds with violence. Nearly every eyewitness, including Frank Golder, noted that the Cossacks were reluctant to engage with protesters, which was, of course, oh. radically different from just a decade earlier. And there's no real reason why this is, other than that, you know, the Cossacks are not a part of the government. You need to remember the Cossacks are like right. a private militia, which is oh, okay. at times friendly towards the government and at times not but they're kind right. of a private militia which the government tolerates because they're very powerful <laughs> as you can imagine there's a lot of them yeah. and they're like hungarian nobles and native men so it's not known why they stood down other than you know maybe conscience but it's also suspected that the reason why they had to fire into the crowds in 1905 was because the crowds became so violent and unruly. Why? Because in 1905, the Cossacks were issued those leather whips. If you'll remember, I was explaining in the last episode that in order to disperse the crowds, at first they didn't fire into them. They smacked them with whips over and over and over again. Well, they weren't issued those whips this time. And so they, I suppose, didn't want to immediately start firing into crowds and slaughter hundreds of people. So they didn't. So on Saturday evening, rioters in Vyborg set fire to a police station. And even with all of this, there's still a, a little sense that the military actually has lost control of St. Petersburg because there's no barricades and there's no battles ensuing. Uh, right. Germanophobia is plentiful in the Duma, where the common line taken by Milyukov, Guchkov, and Rojanko uh, is, that, is that which was uh, first explicitly said by socialist revolutionary Alexander Kerensky that the regime was populated by pro-German traitors. 
A, quote, down with the war placard was raised in St. Petersburg's main square on Sunday afternoon, and it evoked such protests from the crowd that it had to be withdrawn. Milyukov told Kerensky he suspected the placards were financed by the Germans. Instead, the political mood was more evident in another common placard that was found around the city, which did not provoke such riots, which said down with the German woman in reference to Tsarina Alexandra's German heritage. The next day, the regime struck back. Fearing threats on his wife's life, Nicholas ordered Commander Kabalov, a local district military commander, to end the protest before tomorrow night. Kabalov orders his men to be ready by dawn to confront protesters. On Sunday morning... Sunday's a bad day for these guys. On Sunday morning, February 26th, Kabalov's troops spread out the city in combat gear and arrest hundreds of notorious political agitators. Around midday, scattered gunfire can be heard throughout the city, uh, and it was the army and not the police who fired the first shots into crowds. The Volinsky Guard Regiment fired into a crowd and killed about 40 people, and by dusk, the city was calming. A police directory had issued that the order that order had been restored, but the announcement was premature because discord started to grow in the army garrisons as protesters moved to the Pavlovsky barracks in the city to seek redress with off-duty soldiers about the actions of their active-duty compatriots. And this ignited a small demonstration where no officers were killed and many of the men in the barracks joined with the protesters and were persuaded uh, not to obey further orders to fire into demonstration crowds. People were so disgusted with the violence in the city square that the commanding officer who gave the fire order, Major Lashkovich, was roundly abused throughout the whole night, and tensions in the barracks soared to such a degree that Lashkovich was shot to death by several of his men. The news of this spreads like wildfire throughout the entire city garrison, uh, which leads to a mutiny of one squad after another. These men had good reason to mutiny because many of them were recently drafted and then stuffed like sardines into uncomfortable makeshift barracks. For example, an area which was meant to house 20,000 soldiers was packed with 160,000 draftees who were already primed to protest. One brave officer, a commander of a cyclist battalion named Colonel Balakshin, uh, puts together a loyal group of guardsmen who occupy the center and inside of a nearby city barracks which had not fallen to mutiny. And asking for military instruction, on Tuesday he would not live long enough to receive his orders as he was shot in the heart as mutineers went into the barracks and destroyed it. Mutineers were spurred on by protesting crowds which were radiant with the presence of pretty young women, mostly student protesters. Students, uh, or rather soldiers, abandoned their posts by the hours, joining the crowds and adorning themselves with the same red ribbons worn by many of the girl protesters. Frank Golder writes, at the same time, girl students were talking to the soldiers and offering them food and teaching them how to sing French songs. In one automobile, a hooligan with a sword sat astride the engine. About two dozen soldiers with a girl student in their midst stood up and all of them raved the red flag, the red flag with the soldiers shooting in the air. So that, I, was, I found that was incredibly interesting, the use of the student girls to get the soldiers uh, on board. That's genius. Genius. <laughs> <laughs> genius. And, and any revolutionary group should keep the student girls in mind. <laughs> oh, 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 yes. Uh, police stations were obviously being overwhelmed and torched 
Policemen were lynched, shops and markets were broken into and looted, and the Central Artillery Administration Command Building was stormed for its weaponry. It's starting to sound familiar if you have been following the recent events in the U.S. <laughs> 8,000 yep. inmates were freed from prison, but unlike those of the French Revolution, many of these prisoners were hardened criminals and not political prisoners, and this spurred the looting even more. The Okrana headquarters, the secret police, uh, was stormed, but not before a great bonfire broke out, which destroyed thousands of police secret documents. And this was likely uh, done by Okrana informers themselves. Control over the city was difficult to ascertain, and because the press was striking, there was no official news of any kind. So Rajanko had dissolved the Duma on Saturday under the orders of Nicholas II. Rajanko pled in a letter to Nicholas saying Petrograd was in a state of anarchy with wild shooting on the streets and troops firing at each other. His advice was for Nicholas to, again, appoint a government of public confidence, a suggestion which the Tsar had heard one too many times before. Nicholas refers to Rajanko as a fat man who writes him all kinds of nonsense that he shan't even bother to answer. In a scene reminiscent to the tennis court oath which takes place uh, uh, in France, the Tsar had dissolved the Duma, but the Duma's doors uh, had not been locked as there was no functioning government, but the party leaders had to meet secretly so not to be caught in acts of insubordination and treason against their Tsar. Some Duma members wanted to go public to embrace the revolutionary spirit, such as Kerensky, but he was argued down by Milyukov, Lvov, and Rodjanko. By Monday afternoon, February 28th of the Julian calendar of uh, 1917, the mutiny in St. Petersburg had spiraled out of control. Kabalov had sent desperate telegrams saying that he'd lost control of the garrison and required reliable troops to be sent in uh, from the war front. Now, elites had begun to support Rajanko's suggestion of appointing a government of public confidence, and popular military leaders began to send in applications for the position of military dictator. The Tsar was unwilling to convene the Duma and had rebuffed Rajanko's desires for a government of public confidence, supporting a military dictatorship of his own more. It was decided that the Tsar would travel alone, as, as the rest of his family was sick with measles, to St. Petersburg to personally oversee the situation in the city. He and his loyal general, we should say loyal for now, he and his loyal general, Mikhail Alexiev, who was ostensibly loyal to the Tsar, but had been in contact with Rajanko and had more or less been persuaded on the idea of abdication, would take separate trains. Alexiev would travel ahead with military regiments meant to reinforce the loyal garrisons, and Nicholas would travel behind him on a slightly longer route that would set him back one day. But Rajanko had been secretly plotting with elites to dethrone Nicholas and impose a regency headed by Grand Duke Michael, the Tsar's brother, until Alexei came of age. And by Monday, the Duke was reluctantly convinced to go along with it so long as he had the Tsar's consent. Now, in order for this to be pulled off, Rajanko had to have control over the trains. So we'll right. see how he does that. More telegrams come in for the Tsar from various parties, which the Tsar does not know support Rajanko, begging him to install a government of public confidence. They all use the same term, by the way. I've looked at all the documents. It's the same exact term. General Alexiev pleads on his knees that the Tsar should capitulate to a government of public confidence. But unable to reconcile the act with his conscience or his oath of office, the Tsar is forced to decline and resolves to travel to Sarskoselo to administer the situation in the city. 
Right. Remember, he, by the way, he's like a couple hundred miles away right now. He's yeah. not anywhere near St. Petersburg, just so we could place that. Obviously, he's got to get, I think he, right now he's in the other city I named. I think it's called Sarko or something like that. Sakov or something like that. That's his other summer home. <laughs> when you ball like that, you can afford to have two summer palaces. Uh, Rajanko and other revolutionaries were taking refuge at Torida Palace, an older palace from previous dynasties, which was closer to the city and was surrounded by mutineers from all sides. The Provisional Executive Committee of the Petrograd Soviet of Workers' Deputies was assembled in rooms 12 and 13 of the Torida Palace under the chairmanship of two Menshevik Duma deputies. These are in opposition to Rajanko, remember. Rajanko is not a Bolshevik, not a Menshevik. He's a loyalist, more or less, to some sort of Octoberist cause. Think about it this way. The two major factions in the Duma right now, besides the ambassadors uh, who come from other countries, and besides, you know, student groups and things like that, the main representatives are the Bolsheviks, and you can put in parentheses next to them the Mensheviks, because that's right. the same group more or less right yeah. now still. And on the other side, you have the Octoberists, who are who are, support a constitutional monarchy. They're not they're not forming Soviets. They're not socialists necessarily. They're certainly not communists. So those are the two groups you're dealing with. Very similar to other revolutions that we may talk about in the future, which end up being spit, split between, uh, certainly the French Revolution is the case, split between, um, you know, globalist socialism and um, nationalist, you know, more or less nationalist sentiment. So this is kind of the same situation going on here. So the Soviet begins issuing decrees, which effectively means they appoint themselves as a military commission and government of the city. So Rajanko and his side had been outdone, and they experienced terrible pressures to respond uh, by Duma elders. So you can consider the Duma elders to be largely this group of um, Octoberist sympathetics. The Menshevik lawyer N.D. Sokolov had been sent by the Soviet to room 41 to keep an eye on where the elders were. And Rajanko, desperate to regain a degree of control in the city and among the police and population, announced that the Duma's B.A. Engelhart a retired colonel would take command of the military district. Sokolov obviously argues against this, saying that the staff had already formed and operated the district. Rajanko puts his foot down, saying that the Soviet had forced him to intervene in the business and that they should obey kindly. But Sokolov walks out, daring Rajanko to challenge the authority of the Soviet, the popularity of which was rapidly growing among protesting workers and soldiers. Rajanko issues a decree in response to the challenge, urging citizens of Petrograd to protect the telegrams, water supply lines, electric powerhouses, street railways, and government office buildings. The organization which made the decree was coined the Provisional Committee of the State Duma, and the committee regretfully announces that it was compelled to take action as the chaos of the old government was destroying the state. Rajanko's appeal to the population places a strong emphasis on the necessity of maintaining the monarchical principle of Russia. So this is what he told General Alexeev. In truth, Rajanko's communications to other party members and to the local newspapers never mention any such thing. And so even as Alexeev is privately uh, uh, being ensured that Rajanko is a monarchist, in truth, Rajanko is appointing radical leaders to the Progressive Party who are responsible for maintaining the railways, critical positions during wartime, but even more critical now that the Tsar's train is near arriving Sarsko Selo. 
The Tsar uh, soon caught wind that prog progressive radical leaders were in control and that his train was going to be routed directly to Petrograd, avoiding Sarskoselo. Remember, Sarskoselo is just a few miles out of the city, and it's a very strong and well-protected fortress. Yeah. Uh, he does, but he finds out, oh, you want to send me into the city? So in another letter sent by Rajanko to the mayor of Moscow, he declares that the old government doesn't exist, and that the interior what? minister was arrested, and that the power was to reside with the committee of the state Duma under his chairmanship. But the Tsar didn't abdicate. Rajanko was more or less lying his way into power. He inaugurated a new government on himself and demanded loyalty from both Moscow and the military command. And remarkably, most of Russia's top generals throw their hats in with him, including Alexiev, who at this point had been fully convinced that the Tsar needed to abdicate. So together he and Rajanko agree to the terms of abdication, installing his brother as a regent for his son, while at the same time instructing Rajanko to form a government now responsible to a sovereign Duma. And the meeting was set, but it never happened. The Tsar, suspicious of the train being rerouted, ordered the train to turn around and go to the city of Skov, where he hoped to find refuge with the northern army. And by the time he reaches Skov, the empire he once ruled would be changed beyond recognition. Okay. There oh, it shit. is. Wow. <laughs> I promise Jesus Lenin Christ. <laughs> I think Lenin I promise Lenin is next time. Uh Jesus. I think. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. A lot of names that you're probably not gonna remember that you're not familiar with, but if you're going into the next episode or or I guess if you're not going into the next episode, because we uploaded the two of these first episodes as a dual package, and now we're going to wait maybe a little while to do two or three more episodes as a package. Yeah. Just remember, maybe you want to remember the name Rajanko. <laughs> and uh, that would be great. And that's probably, I don't know, because I haven't gotten that far. I actually have done more research now on the Chinese uh, uh, on our on our Chinese episode, the Chinese Communist Revolution, more oh, than I yeah. have on the next section with Lenin in it. So uh, oh, I have no idea. <laughs> No clue where we're going with this. Um, it's getting a little crazy. But so yeah, at this point, to end the episode, what you basically have is the Tsar is convinced to get on a train. And that was all they needed. Just get him on a train. They get him on a train. Word breaks that radicals are now controlling the train. And he says, oh no, I am not going to St. Petersburg directly. I am going to my castle first. He realizes that's not an option. And so he basically says, I'm going to Skov. And if you look at where Skov <laughs> is on the map, go look at where Skov is on P-S-K-O-V. Skov. Oh, look at it oh, on the map. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. One second. Everybody go ahead and, go ahead and do that. Not that fast. Uh, so you will notice Skov, P-S-K-O-V. I like this is the, this is the post episode. A. <laughs> Sorry, P S K P S K O V Skov. P S K O Skov. So everybody go look at it on a map. So look at where it is. Look at where it is. Look at where he was coming from. I mean, where he was coming from is like far beyond Moscow. So you can find that. Obviously, you can find Saint Petersburg, and he's going to Skov, which is just at the border of modern day Estonia, and it's on the it's on Lake Pivka, which has a direct yeah. access route to the ocean, the Gulf of Finland, and then to that, the ocean. Uh -huh. So this right. is where he is right now. He goes yeah. to Skov, 
and 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 goes to the northern army because of course the southern army is fighting down there in Georgia. It's an incredibly yeah. long distance. I know. If you're not looking at it on a map, it's like north to South America. The distance, probably same distance. Um, sorry, mm-hmm. I mean like north of the north of of the U.S. to about. Oh right. Probably middle of Mexico. It's huge. It's a huge, yeah, huge difference. Crazy. So right now he's in Skov, which looks to be uh, several states or countries away from St. Petersburg, probably a day or two's trip. And that's where he's sitting right now, hoping to get some help from the army. But will he? We'll find out next week. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> well, no, we won't find out next. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out whenever the episode's week. upload. Yeah. <laughs> we'll find out whenever the episode's upload. Um, after we're done here, I'm going to send Paz DM. If we're... Uh, uh, well, basically, the week after this, if I can all um, get it together, I will likely be talking with Paz about QAnon. Um, oh, very good. That's good. That'll be a good break from Russia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's a bit more digestible. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, this is – I definitely think, well, this is – for me, I've been, I enjoyed this episode writing this one more than the first one even, but this is definitely the one that's harder to follow along with because of all the names <laughs> and all the things yes. happening. So uh, if, if this one, luckily, it actually, I think it's shorter than the previous one, despite the fact that it has twice as many words Word. in, it, in yeah. my notes. But I, I think it, that's good. That's good. That's good. Hopefully the next one, which will undoubtedly have 16,000 words in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be about Trotsky and Lenin. Maybe it's not even going to be about Trotsky. I have no idea, dude. Uh, we'll find out soon. We'll find out soon. Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, with 9,000 oh, 9, words, uh, yeah. you're pretty damn close to the word count of my entire fucking thesis. My uh, my thesis has 12,000 words. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, but, it, but it's actually tremendous amounts of quotes because... It has to do a lot with the Uyghurs' treatment or, uh, in China. Right. It's, it's right. a lot of right. Chinese documents just being directly quoted. But yeah, I know how it is to write, you know, ten thousand words. It's a pain in the ass. <laughs> but I did enjoy this one because this one is largely just me going, "Ah, this is what three different writers say." Okay, here's a paragraph. So it's not yep. so bad. Um, especially <laughs> yeah, when I'm only going chapter by chapter. Yeah. Uh, okay, man. Let's do our pluggies because this is probably going on both of our shows. Um, Hell yeah! So you do you do your pluggies? I'll do mine. All right. Well, thank you uh, for letting me go first. Uh, you can find me on Twitter under uh, at Bullshito Paul. That is Bullshito with B U double L Shiro and then P O L as in politics. Let's see. I have a podcast called No Real Libertarian. Um, so yeah, find me on all of the, uh, important podcasters, Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I'm also on discord on Keybase, and well, you can find me on similar names there. Uh, but yeah, mostly just Twitter and the podcast. There you go. All right. Uh, I am a bird artist. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I operate a show called the Friends Against Government Podcast, which if you're not listening to it on this, you're probably listening to it on Bullshito's show. Otherwise, it's been leaked on the internet somewhere. Uh, so go, f- come and view my show as well. Uh, uh, but Well, I guess not really, because you're going to probably find this episode. 
if you do. So maybe wait a week and then come and view my show where different content will be available to you. <laughs> uh, and that's it. Um, yeah, that's it. Thanks for doing this, Bushido. I appreciate you just let me talk at you for uh, a classroom's length of time. Actually, <laughs> that's really interesting because this was more or less the length of a college class for me. I don't know about for you, but an hour and a half is pretty standard college class length. Uh, uh, so for me, it's generally either one hour or two hours. We, yeah, we get hour and a half and three hours. I hate three hours, by the way, but hour and a half are great. And so I felt like I just did that today. So thank you. Bushido, and to all the listeners for letting me educate you on um, a very strange part of the Russian Revolution, yeah. some very odd yeah. period right before it. And uh, I will. Yeah. Oh, wait, oh, hold I... on. You got to do the two hands on the, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so, goddammit. Um, what's it again? Keep two hands on the wheel? Yeah, but you got to do it your way. Yeah, but you got to do it your way. All right, well. That made um, me want to go straw, by the way. When you, you just saying that is like a Pavlovian, like when someone says key tunes on the wheel, I almost have to go squaw. Like it's almost a habit. <laughs> All right. I'll make it a little difficult for you, Bert. Um, okay, fine. All right, boys and girls. Uh, how to Honda on the steer? Squaw! <laughs> <laughs> it's in Dutch.